Luke chapter 24, if we could all please stand, we'll be reading verses 46 down through the end of the book. Verse 53. Luke 24, <clears throat> verses 46 to 53. This is, of course, Jesus speaking, verse 46. He said to them, to his disciples, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Father, we pray that you would help us here as we are concluding this wonderful study of the life and ministry of our Savior and Lord. I pray that you would help us to learn, to grow, and uh, just <clears throat> to take all that we've learned, to focus it in on our mission as Christians, as your followers, what it is that we've been called to do, advancing your kingdom, making disciples of all nations. Pray, God, that you would help this uh, time together that we have in your word to be impactful for each one of us <clears throat> and ultimately to set the direction for our church in the years to come. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I have a question for you to consider uh, right at the start this morning. Uh, we just read some of the last words of Jesus on earth before his ascension. We read how he left his disciples, how he was carried up into heaven and then Luke tells us that the disciples rejoiced and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Perhaps that didn't strike you as odd when we read it, but think about it. This was their teacher. This was their friend. This was the one they called master, the one that they had left their jobs, their livelihoods to follow. And he left them. You would think that this would be a time of sadness. That's typically how we respond when a loved one moves far away or something. Uh, we don't go home and throw a party about it and are filled with joy, and yet that was their reaction. And so why? why? Why did they respond with joy, with rejoicing, when Jesus left them? I'm not going to give you the answer right now. I just want to put that thought in your mind. We're going to return to it later. As you know, this is our, our last week in a little over two years studying through Luke's gospel. And I have to say, I'm excited to get to, to preach through the book of Acts. I'm also a little bit sad uh, to say goodbye to the book of Luke. Uh, but these last few verses we're looking at this morning are such a fitting end to the book. Uh, really, it's, it's the point of the whole thing. Uh, these verses may, in fact, be the most important section in all of Luke's gospel, because this is the conclusion now, this is what everything we've studied has been leading up to. I want to begin by reminding you of last week's sermon, in particular a couple of phrases from the Road to Emmaus story. Uh, the first one is found in verse 21. This is when Jesus walks up next to those two disciples that are walking down the road. Remember, this is before they knew uh, that Jesus was risen again. They had seen him die a couple of days earlier. And they said of Jesus in verse 19, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in word and uh, deed and word before God and all the people, uh, our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. They crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped, uh, past tense. This is what they were hoping that he was going to do, and now 
they're not sure what to think of Jesus. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, meaning we thought for sure that he was the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, but now he's dead. Uh, so apparently we were wrong about him. This was the attitude that the followers of Christ had after they saw him crucified. All hope was lost. Their expectations of Jesus were disappointed. And when he appeared to them alive, the very first thing that he does is correct the mistaken views that they had of the Messiah. They needed a paradigm shift. And so verse 25 of the same chapter, Jesus says to those two, Foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Again, we mentioned last week, they believed some of what the prophets had said. Uh, they, they were clinging on to the hope of a Messiah who would rule in Jerusalem and conquer the enemies of Israel. But they had missed all of those other passages about the Messiah suffering and dying for his people, for him, about him rising again from the dead. And so Jesus says, verse 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Again, in verse 44, when Jesus appears to the 11 apostles and some others who were there with them, he says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. All of that, what he just said, was written about uh, Christ in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, all of it must be fulfilled. Everything written in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, in the Psalms, all of it will be fulfilled. And here's how Jesus summarizes all of that in verse 46 and 47. If you have a Bible in front of you, you can look at this. He says in verse 46, it's written that Christ would die, that he would suffer, that he would rise again the third day. And then verse 47, he continues. It's also written that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. So the first part has been fulfilled at this point. Jesus is alive from the dead. He already died on the cross and rose again. And as we saw last week, that act was the fulfillment of many prophecies throughout the Old Testament. But that's not all that's written, and thus that's not all that must be fulfilled. Uh, that isn't all that was prophesied about the Messiah. You also have the prophecies about him ruling and about his kingdom expanding to all nations of the world. And so this is the shift in thinking that they needed. Let's put uh, verse 20, 21 and verse 47 up on the screen at once so you can see the difference here. Verse 21, this is their expectation. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Uh, they were expecting a military leader, as I've said many times, to overthrow the Roman government and give them their land back, free their country uh, from the occupying Romans. Here's the reality, though, is verse 47. Not just that he was here to redeem Israel, but he was here so that ultimately repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So he didn't come to redeem Israel. He came to redeem the world. They needed to adjust their view of the Messiah off of the temporary onto the eternal, off of the physical onto the spiritual, off of this little plot of land in the Middle East called Israel onto the whole world. Jesus had not come to save Israel from Rome. He had come to save the whole world from sin. 
And this is why he died. They saw his death as a defeat because they thought that the plan was to kill the Romans and get Israel's land back. And if that was Jesus' plan, then dying obviously would be a defeat. But if Jesus was instead redeeming the world from sin, then his dying as a sacrifice for sins was actually a key act in the whole plan. And so the question is, now what? Okay, so he's died for our sins to purchase forgiveness. He's risen back from the dead. Now what? Here's where the all nations part comes in. Because Jesus did, in fact, come to establish a kingdom. Jesus is the king. Uh, not just here and now over Israel, though. Jesus is the king over the whole world. And so now that he's risen from the dead, it's time for him to inherit his kingdom. Uh, let's go over to Matthew's account. This is the, the same account of Jesus ascending, his last words that he gives to the disciples. Uh, this is the message Matthew gives us. I assume that Jesus said these things many times uh, over the, the, the 40 days that he was with these disciples, reiterating the same points. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, not just authority over Israel, not just the right to reign here, all authority in heaven and on earth. I have the right to rule all of it. It's all been given to me. We'll explain in a minute who gave Jesus that authority. Uh, but notice the declaration. I am king of heaven and all earth, followed by the commission. Verse 19. Go therefore. Notice the word therefore. Right? I've said before, whenever you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. Okay? It's always connecting the previous thing that was just said. So because of this. Because I've been given all authority on heaven and earth, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So get this, Jesus has been crowned as king by his resurrection from the dead, and now the job of these followers of Christ is to go out into the world and convert all of planet earth to Jesus. He has the right to rule all of it, given to him by the Father. He is the king, not just over Israel, but over all nations. Now go conquer the world for Jesus. And you do that not by fighting, but by baptizing, by teaching people to obey Jesus' commands. And you keep doing that until everyone on earth is in submission to King Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king that they had been waiting for, but he's not here to restore Israel right now and defeat Rome militarily. He's here to restore the whole world. He's not just here to conquer the pagan Romans and rule in Jerusalem. He's here to conquer over all the pagan rulers across all of the world and rule over all of it. So go advance his kingdom. Jesus means to rule over America. Jesus means to rule over Europe. Jesus means to rule over Afghanistan. And he will. His kingdom will continue to grow and expand until all of the world, every nation, is under his rule and is submitting to Christ as king. Just like Jesus walked the disciples through the Old Testament and showed how it was all pointing to his death and resurrection for sins, I think he did the same thing here. He went through the Old Testament prophets and showed how his kingdom would grow and expand until all the nations of the world are in obedience to him. Because if you look, again, if you have a Bible in front of you, if you look at verses 44 to 47, Jesus says to them, everything written about me in the Psalms, prophets, and the law of Moses, it's all going to be fulfilled. And then he opens their minds to understand those scriptures, and he says to them, it's written that Christ would suffer, that he would rise the third day, 
and that repentance for forgiveness would be preached in his name to all nations of the world. And so that is the part, uh, that, that's part of what the Old Testament prophesied about the Messiah. Not just that he's going to die and rise again. We saw that part last week. But also it's prophesied that he would rule over the world, that his kingdom would expand to all nations. And so just like last week, we went through all of those texts showing you where the death of Christ and his resurrection was predicted in the Old Testament. We're going to go through some uh, this morning. Uh, same type of thing, prophets, uh, the Psalms. are going to go through these texts and show you where does the Old Testament say that, that the Messiah would come, that he would establish a kingdom, and that he would rule over all of the world? Let's begin with Isaiah 9, verse 6. You're probably familiar with this. You hear it a lot at Christmas time. Isaiah says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder. That little phrase we tend to kind of gloss over when we read this part. Uh, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we've got a child, we've got a son. Of course, we know that as the baby in Bethlehem. This is Jesus. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That means he's a king. <laughs> he, he's, got, he's got a kingdom that he's come for. His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. You've got the deity of Christ there, of course. But notice verse 7. Still, still speaking about this child, this son that's going to be born. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this child has a government, a kingdom, and it's going to continually increase. He comes as a child born to rule. And his rule will gradually spread and increase. And as it does, as more and more people across the world are living under his lordship, peace will spread as well. Notice that the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The kingdom of Christ will continually increase and spread and he will reign forever. And that reign starts at the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And it's still spreading today. And one day, everyone will recognize the authority of Christ. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How about Psalm 2? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, speaking of the resurrection. Verse 8, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. This is God the Father speaking to his son. And he says to him, ask of me and I will give you all the nations of the world. The ends of the earth will be yours. They will submit to you and you'll rule over them. Psalm 22, again, this is uh, the messianic psalm that we actually looked at last week. Remember where the psalmist goes through that detailed account of how Jesus is going to die and suffer. At the end of that, verse 27, he says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. This is a prediction. All the ends of the earth will turn to Christ. All the families of the nations worshiping him. And the reason is verse 28, because kingship belongs to the Lord. In other words, all authority on heaven and on earth is his, and he will reign over all the world. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, God the Father speaking to his son, saying, sit here at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. Notice the timing there. 
Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. That's where we just read that he ascended to. And he stays there until all of his enemies are made a footstool. Meaning, before Jesus returns, all of the world will be in submission to him as king. Revelation 11 says, this is at the end of time, that the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, how did that happen? How is it that at the end of time, the kingdoms of the world will be the kingdom of Christ? And the answer is what Jesus said earlier in Luke. You may remember this. This goes back, I don't know, maybe a year or so. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts really small and slowly, gradually grows. One convert at a time, one nation at a time. And this is why we've been at it for 2,000 years now and why I suspect there may be another 10,000 years to go before all of the world is his kingdom. Matthew 24 says this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We win the world to Christ by preaching the gospel of the kingdom, one person at a time, submitting to, the, to Christ as Lord and King, until one day, as Habakkuk 2 says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How much do the waters cover the sea? I'd say pretty much completely. That's how full the earth will be one day of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So yes, Jesus is the king. He has come to reign and rule. He is going to win for himself a kingdom. And he's commissioned us as his followers to do that. We are to go out and advance the kingdom of Christ on earth by preaching the gospel, baptizing converts, and teaching them to obey all that Christ commands. This is the task of the local church. We don't fight to conquer. We preach the gospel. And it's through the message of Jesus' death and resurrection, the new life that we can have through him, this is how we win the world. And one person at a time, one family at a time, one church at a time, one city at a time, one state at a time, one nation at a time, his reign will spread until all the world is in submission to Christ. So Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king that they were waiting for, but they were thinking too small. He's here to rule the whole world. He's here to rescue sinners across the planet from the curse of sin. He's here to pull us out of darkness and restore our relationship with God that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Now let's look at Philippians 2. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn here with me. I think it'll help you to see this in front of you. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. If you're in Luke, uh, turn right a few books. You'll run into Galatians and then Ephesians and then Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, this is a very familiar text, uh, but perhaps there's a few things here you've not yet seen. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 5 of Philippians 2. This is where Paul gives us the connection uh, between Jesus' death and resurrection and his right to rule the world. Uh, remember back in Matthew 28, Jesus had said to his disciples uh, right before his ascension, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here's where we find out who gave Jesus this authority. Uh, why was he given all authority to rule? Uh, what does that mean? I want to point out a few things, First, uh, particularly in verse 9, but we've got to start with verse 5 uh, to get the context. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, Paul tells us to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So imitate the mindset of Jesus. And in particular, as we'll see, 
Uh, Paul is talking about his humility and his obedience, his submission to God. Okay, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, Jesus, you know, equal in every way with the Father, yet he did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So even as Jesus went to the cross to die, he did so as an act of submission and obedience to the Father's will. Uh, remember the Garden of Gethsemane. What does Jesus pray? Not my will, but yours be done. Uh, he's sweating drops of blood. He's grieving over what he knows is awaiting him. And yet he submits and willingly and obediently goes to the cross to pay the debt of sin that we owed. And because he did that, verse 9, what's the first word there? Therefore, right? So we got we to gotta always notice those connection, connecting words. So because of what Paul just said, because Jesus was obedient in going to the cross, therefore God the Father has highly exalted him, Jesus. And he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So now what's that name? It's not Jesus. Okay, Jesus was his name at birth. This is a different name. God is bestowing on him a name, a title that is above every name. Something that God has given to Christ because of his obedience in going to the cross. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Because God has given him this title, at, at the name of Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the name that has been bestowed upon Jesus, Lord. He's been given that title so that at the name of Christ, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. That's like saying all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Now, sometimes we hear that phrase and we think, well, that just means he's God. <laughs> and so confessing Jesus is Lord means saying, Jesus is God, and I believe that. I affirm that as true. Uh, no, confessing Jesus as Lord means a lot more than that. It means I'm pledging my allegiance to him. Lord, master. If I say uh, he's my master, that means I'm his servant. Uh, I obey him. I'm his. I'm his subject. He's my king. He is my sovereign. He has the authority to rule and reign over all of the earth, starting with my life. Because all authority is his. Authority over me, authority over this church, authority over our country, authority over all of the world. And so as we go into the world making disciples of all nations, we're telling people essentially, Jesus is Lord. And we teach them how they can be forgiven, how he died for their sins, and we teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded. This is how the kingdom of God spreads. Jesus is Lord. That's the most foundational statement of Christianity. If you want to summarize what Christians believe down to three words, Jesus is Lord. This is why Paul said in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead, if you confess that he is Lord, you're a Christian. Uh, that's the gospel. If you believe this message and place your hope for forgiveness in Jesus' death and resurrection for you, if you submit your life to his service, confessing Jesus as Lord, he promises to forgive your sins, transform your life, and raise you from the dead to live with him eternally. 
And so here's the conclusion of all of what we've seen. If Jesus is the king, and the resurrection proves that he is, then our job is to submit to his lordship and advance his rule across the world. Now this brings us to our text. All of that was introduction. Uh, Let's look at how Luke ends this book. This is the conclusion of it all. Jesus says to his followers, verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed or preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Three quick points from verse 47. Uh, The mission, the means, and the message. First of all, the mission. Advance the reign of Jesus all over the world until everyone confesses that Jesus is Lord. That's our mission. Every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Christ is Lord. He says to them, in essence, go win the world on three. And the amazing thing about it is they actually did it. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, uh, 6,000 miles away from that little group of Christians meeting in a little country the size of New Jersey in the middle of the Middle East. And here we are today celebrating the fact that Jesus paid for our sins and is alive from the dead. We here today and every gathering of Christians across the world exists because that first little church, that first little group of committed followers of Jesus, they launched that message into the world and changed the course of human history. But it's not done yet. We are to continue the work of building the kingdom of Christ that they started until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. All nations, that's the mission. Next, notice the means, proclamation or preaching. How do we accomplish this task of converting the world to Jesus? By preaching. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. I think the important thing for us to think about here is not to be distracted by other endeavors and forget that this is our focus, that this is our goal. For example, uh, we care about abortion here at our church. This is a subject, uh, if you know me at all, you know I'm very passionate about. Uh, Nothing really drives me to tears or makes me angry, uh, quite like thinking, even right now, uh, thinking about abortion. And we will fight for justice for the unborn. Uh, You're going to notice in the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, some actions our church is going to be taking uh, in light of the recent Supreme Court uh, thing that's coming out uh, to see that abortion ends in our state. But with all of that said, the best way to end abortion for good is to win people to Jesus. Because nobody can honestly say, Jesus is my Lord and I'm going to murder my child. (laughs) Ultimately, this is the hope for the world to be freed from sin and all of its consequences. Our hope is not in politics, ultimately. Our hope is not in uh, other endeavors. Our hope for the freedom of sin and its consequences on earth is to change the hearts of people with the gospel. And notice, we proclaim the way of forgiveness. Salvation of souls is our primary concern as a church. We aren't just telling people uh, to do better, to clean up their life. We're showing them how to be forgiven of all their sins. This is why Jesus came. Gabriel told Joseph back in Matthew 1 that Mary would bear a son and call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is the whole point. Jesus didn't come just to give us some good teachings and moral advice. He came to save us from sin. Luke 19.10, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, to rescue sinners, to show them the way of forgiveness. This is why Jesus came. And so we care about suffering. 
Uh, Christians have always fed the hungry, built orphanages and hospitals. All of that increases wherever Christianity goes around the world. But that cannot displace our primary focus. We are not here just to make your temporary earthly life better. Our goal is that your sins would be forgiven, that you would find new life in Christ. Maybe you remember back in Luke chapter 5, Jesus was teaching in a crowded room some men uh, bring on a bed a man who was paralyzed, seeking healing from Jesus. And verse 19 says they couldn't find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, and so they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now he's still lying paralyzed on the bed. Okay, your sins are forgiven you. Uh, okay, but I need healing. Jesus, if you keep reading, basically says, yes, you do need healing, and I'm going to give that to you. But the best thing that I did for you today wasn't make you walk. Best thing that I did for you today was forgive your sins. Forgiveness of sins and preaching the gospel is our primary focus. Again, that's not to say we don't care about suffering. We don't care about other uh, physical, temporary things. We do. But as a church, our primary focus is preaching the gospel to the lost. And so the mission is to win the world to Jesus. The means is preaching. But what is the message? We cannot win the world if we have the wrong message. We cannot go out and tell people, pray this magic prayer, asking Jesus to forgive you, and now you're in the kingdom. That's not the message. That's not what Jesus told us to say. Look at what he told us, verse 47. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Repentance. Repent and be forgiven of all your sins. That is our message. We must not water it down. We must not confuse it. Repentance is at the heart of the presentation of the gospel. Jesus did not die just so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life and then continue to live sin-filled, broken, wasteful lives of self-indulgence and debauchery. Yet unfortunately, that's precisely what modern American Christianity teaches. That you can be forgiven by Jesus without being changed by Jesus. First of all, that isn't true. Secondly, why would you even want that? Why would you want a, a free ticket to eternal life but no transformation of your life now? It's like a kid turning 16 and being excited to get his permit. And then his dad hands him the keys to drive home and he says, Ah, no thank you. I actually don't want to drive. I just want to have this permit. Being a Christian isn't just about not dying. It's also about how you live. Titus chapter 2, Paul says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And look at how he goes on to describe the salvation that is offered to everyone. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is why Jesus died. Not just to give us eternal life. Yes, that's all the ultimate goal. Our, our blessed hope is the return of Christ, living with him forever. But Jesus died to redeem us from sin and to purify us as people for his own possession who are doing his will. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So why, why did he die on the cross? So that we might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For we were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of, of your souls. And so our message is one of repentance. We aren't just telling people how they can be forgiven. Yes, that is the goal. But we're also telling them how they can be transformed, how they can be redeemed in their lives today, how they can have abundant life. Becoming a citizen in Jesus' kingdom means submitting to his rule over your life. You're the subject. He's the king. That's what it means if you confess Jesus is Lord. He's my master. That's repentance. Turning from a life of sin to a life of service. Now, all of this seems pretty monumental, doesn't it? Uh, our job is to go win the whole world to Jesus. We do this by preaching the gospel that Jesus died and rose again for our sins. And if we will repent, embrace him as Lord, we can be forgiven and given new life. That's the message. That's the means by which we will accomplish this mission that we've been given. But it's a little overwhelming, isn't it? All nations, good grief. <laughs> every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. It's easy to think that's impossible. That's never going to happen. But honestly, if you told this little group of people that Jesus was talking to in the middle of Israel, if you told them that uh, there would be a day when millions of committed followers of Jesus would be meeting all around the globe in churches just like this one, they would probably look back at you and say, yeah, right, that's never going to happen. Never underestimate what can happen given enough time. It's been 2,000 years. We've done a pretty good job considering how we started. And so rather than thinking, what can I do and what can our church do to win the whole world to Jesus in my lifetime, a much more helpful way to think is, how can I contribute this week to the spread of Jesus' gospel? How can I contribute in my life, my, my little part, whatever God has for my life, to advance his kingdom? Is there somebody that I could reach with the gospel? Is there somebody I could invite to church? Am I myself living as a committed follower of Christ? Rather than trying to win the whole world yourself, Start with your street. Start with your family. Start with your Jerusalem. Notice what Jesus said. Repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Yeah, eventually this thing is going global. That's the end goal. But for now, start here. Start with Jerusalem. And as we'll see when we go through Acts chapter 1, Jesus basically says, when you're done with Jerusalem, go to the next town. And then go to the next one. And then go to the next region. Just keep slowly spreading the kingdom of Christ. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. It's not our job to reach the world. That's God's job. Remember, God's the one who said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God's going to do that, not you. Your job and my job is to be one little piece in that puzzle. Submit to Jesus. Do what he's commanded. Live your life to his service. And then look around you right where you are. Ask God to bring people into your life that you can share Christ with. Not your job to reach the whole world. But it might be your job to reach Sally next door. It might be your job to reach your cousin Steve. It might be your job to reach Joe from work. Or maybe Barbara from that little burger joint you visit every week. Look around you. Start where you are. This is our Jerusalem. So these are our marching orders from the king. Preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and with that message, go throughout the whole world, advancing the reign of Jesus to all nations until every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, and start right where you are.
Verse 48, let's look at these closing words of Jesus. He says to them, you are witnesses of these things. Of course, these apostles, uh, they had seen Jesus die. They are now seeing him resurrected. They are eyewitnesses of this incredible event. And so they are to go and testify to the world that he's alive. Of course, they write our New Testament, uh, giving us these eyewitness accounts. And so he gives them these instructions, preach the gospel to all nations, and in so doing, advance the reign of Christ across the world. But they won't be alone in this effort. Verse 49, he continues, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I'm really not going to do this verse justice this morning. We're going to get into this more as we study the book of Acts. But Jesus is speaking here of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Again, in the book of Acts, those first couple of chapters, we will see this. Uh, that, that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to uh, empower these disciples of Christ as they go throughout this mission. And by the way, as Christians, Paul tells us that everybody, all of us as Christians, that name the name of Christ, that confess Jesus as, as Lord, we have that same Holy Spirit empowering us. And by the way, just to answer the question I raised earlier, I think this is at least part of the reason that the disciples left rejoicing that day. Jesus had told them much about the coming of the Spirit. John 16, for example, he said to them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Think about that. He's telling them, I'm going to leave you all. If you read the rest of the chapter there, he's telling them, I'm leaving you, but this is actually going to be good for you. It's to your advantage that I leave. And here's the reason. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Again, you read the context, you find out he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. So apparently, being indwelled by the Holy Spirit is better than having Jesus physically present with you. Again, we'll see that thread picked up in the early chapters of Acts when the Spirit does indeed come. Verse 50 and following, we see the ascension of the king to the Father's right hand. It says, he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is where Jesus sits down at the right hand of God the Father, and he will remain there until his kingdom has been won. Sit at my right hand until your enemies are brought under your feet, until the gospel of the kingdom has been preached to all nations, until the ends of the earth are your possession, until the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord. And then, when every knee is bowing, when every tongue is confessing the lordship of Jesus, then he will return. We're not going to go to those other accounts of the ascension, but Jesus tells them at this time, in the same way that I'm leaving you now, I'm going to return one day. Just like Jesus physically ascended and went back to the Father's right hand, he is awaiting the day when he will come back physically to reign on earth. And so this event of the ascension, basically Jesus tells his followers, go disciple the nations, I'll be back when you're done. Paul describes the return of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death will be defeated in the end. This is where the dead are raised, sickness and pain, and death is forever vanquished. This is the ultimate hope of the Christian. We don't look forward to some time when we go up to heaven as some sort of spirit and float on clouds playing harps. Okay, our hope is a redeemed earth. 
with Jesus ruling, the curse of sin lifted. And what we do now is ushering in that final day. The kingdom doesn't show up all at once, but gradually, one person at a time, like a mustard seed, slowly growing until all the ends of the earth are his possession. And then the king returns, he takes his seat on the throne, and all is made right in the world. No more sin, no more death, no more suffering. We're back in Eden. That is the ideal that we hope for. After seeing Jesus ascend to heaven, verse 52 says, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. And this leads us into our next book, where we will see these early followers of Jesus go out into the world and launch the kingdom of Jesus. Such a great end to the book of Luke. It summarizes what the whole point of the book was about. The life and ministry of Jesus, his death and resurrection, the purpose of all of it was verse 47. God sent his son so that the world might be saved. And the book ends with the anticipation of what's going to come. Uh, the Spirit's going to fall on Christ's followers. They will be empowered to go out into all the world with the gospel of Jesus, advancing his reign, one disciple at a time. And with that, we are done with Luke's gospel. We are ready to see the kingdom spread in our study of the book of Acts.